No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, former NFL GM Mike Tannenbaum explains what organizations need to build strong teams. I think there's definitely more than one way to run an effective organization, but I promise you it's filled with people that have the mindset like Sean McVay who have innate curiosity and always want to get better because the sport's evolved and it's really more about the people and a mindset than necessarily how an organization's set up. And former football player Brian Banks talks about spending five years in prison after a wrongful conviction. The most important thing was just that I had got my life back, that the truth was finally out there as to what really happened. You know, I had always told myself I'd figure out, you know, what I do now as long as I can just get the truth there and get my name clear. Plus, Boston writer Alex Spire discusses the difference between last year's World Series champions and this year's version of the Red Sox. You saw the pieces coming together over time, but uh, for it to come together as it did last year was pretty remarkable given their individual and collective backstories. But then again, it's also been kind of interesting to watch it take a turn in a different direction for the Red Sox in 2019. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later the show, we'll be joined by Alex Spire, who covers the Red Sox for the Boston Globe. His new book is Homegrown, How the Red Sox Built a Champion from the Ground Up. We're also going to be talking first, though, about how you build championship teams in football and the state of the NFL with ESPN's own Mike Tannenbaum, the longtime NFL executive who's run the Dolphins. He was the general manager of the New York Jets as well. Mike, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. How's it going, Jeremy? It's good. It's good. So this is the time of year when you start getting really busy. Um, <laughs> what's it like being on the media side of things now? You know, it's been fantastic. You know, I love football. I can't get enough of it. I just had an amazing couple of days. Uh, flew out to Ohio, was at Ohio State's first practice to watch uh, Ryan Day make his debut as a coach with a fascinating transfer in Justin Fields, who was the number one recruit coming out of high school, uh, more so than uh, Trevor Lawrence. And then from there, had the honor and privilege of going to uh, the Hall of Fame. I had Two former players get inducted, Ty Law, who played mostly with New England, uh, but we had him at the Jets, and then uh, Kevin Mawai. So uh, up here in Bristol, and it's uh, all football all the time, and it's been uh, a tremendous experience. Coming from the NFL executive suite experience to ESPN, uh, again, on the media side, what has the transition been like for you? You know, it's been, uh, everyone here has been phenomenal. I just try to bring, um, just another point of view to things. You know, there's been so much going on recently from all the holdouts from, you know, the Zeke Elliott's of the world to trades. And I just try to bring people behind the curtain and tell people, Hey, here's what's actually going on. Here's what teams are thinking. And I just try to be honest and transparent and bring a point of view that hopefully enriches a discussion. But at the end of the day, uh, it was really funny. Uh, I was on Sports Center about 10 days ago and I'm like, you know, we were talking between breaks and Jay Harris goes, how's it going? I'm like, it's great. I'm like, how you doing? He's like, Hey, you know, you put on a little makeup and talk sports. Who has it better than us? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one of the secrets of ESPN. Yeah, the makeup component to it. We're speaking with Mike Tannenbaum, the ESPN NFL insider, longtime NFL 
executive who is, you know, kind of at the beginning of his media career. And, you know, one of the things whenever um, somebody comes to Bristol uh, who's had a long and successful career on the other side of things in the actual world of of on the field uh, stuff, um, the, the thought is always, well, this is just um, temporary. Uh, the ones who stick it out for the long term are few and far between the temptations to go back to the job in the front office or coaching or whatever it might be or sometimes too great. Um, you know, for you, how do you balance, you know, doing the job and also kind of keeping an eye out on what's going on in terms of that other world out there, which is still a possibility for you? You know, Jeremy, for me, uh, one of my friends and candidly, like a, a mentor of mine is Dan Quinn, head coach of the Falcons, and he has a great expression, which is be where your feet are, you know, and be in the moment and be the best you can be. And I'm truly loving this. It's been fantastic. I feel like I know the league in a whole different way, uh, just in terms of keeping track of, you know, everybody, um, at a much more of a big picture sort of, uh, level. And I'm all in. This is where my feet are. And I want to be the best possible broadcaster I could be. One thing that always interests me as somebody who, who covers sports is just, you would think there would be, a model for doing things the right way in every league that you would see the success of one franchise. It would be duplicated over and over again. But in fact, what we see is teams that operate in very different ways from each other with varying degrees of success. Some teams that can't seem to ever get out of their way. Some teams that seem to always know how to do it the right way. Is there a single culture in the NFL or is it a bunch of teams doing it their own way? I think, you know, if we were talking about building a football team, running ESPN, whatever business, you know, a bagel store in New York, you want people that are hardworking, honest, and really have growth mindsets. And I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. There was a uh, a podcast about two months ago that Adam Schefter was interviewing Dan Orlovsky. And Dan Orlovsky was talking about when he got released by the Rams. And for 45 minutes, Sean McVay personally sat down with Orlovsky and said, hey, which team were you with that had the best food? Who had the best travel? Who had the best practice schedule? And there's no that's not a coincidence that Sean McVay is as successful as he's been because of his innate curiosity and growth mindset. And to answer your question, I think there's definitely more than one way to run an effective organization. But I promise you, it's filled with people that have the mindset like Sean McVay who have innate curiosity and always want to get better because the sports evolved and you know we simply could look at New England and say oh just do what they did but I know against competing against them for years between the Jets and the Dolphins that Bill Belichick went up there with one team that was playing on natural grass they were bigger on defense they try to run the ball on offense and over time they went to artificial surface they have obviously an iconic Hall of Famer in Tom Brady and you know they obviously play to his strengths and I think that's one of the things that you know and I've had the good fortune of working for Coach Belichick twice. He he'll often talk about you know being game plan specific or matchup specific, and that's another sort of manifestation of having a growth mindset of what's going to give us the best chance to win. So I think it's really more about the people and a mindset than necessarily um, you know how an organization set up. How has life changed for those who are on the inside, who have those coveted jobs that they've wanted presumably all their lives in the NFL. How has it changed in the last quarter century uh, in terms of uh, 
the amount of hours you have to put in, the amount of dedication, the the constancy of the work. You know, I, I've been really fortunate to be able to talk to people um, before me, like the Ron Wolfs of the world, Bill Polian, Jerry Angelo. You know, and they talked about things like, hey, someone's going to be educating the, your owner, so might as well be you. And that's really true, you know, because the privilege of these jobs, they're so scarce. Um, and our sport is covered so intimately. So what happens is there'll be a lot of stories out there and you may want to ignore them, but you know that they're going to be sort of in the ecosystem of, you know, what's been following your team. So it's so important to stay on the front end of it and be constantly communicating, you know, with ownership as well as the other people in the front office. I always say that the way I always define the positions I had, Jeremy, was I was simply the point guard of information. I wanted to make sure that our owner, head coach, was extremely informed and whatever significant decision we were going to make, you know, if we're going to go sign a player or trade for a player, if we do that, here's what we can't do. Now, collectively, what's the best decision for us? And not only was it a a 24-7 sort of uh, life cycle, for uh, lack of a better term, Jeremy, it was really more about, like, staying on the front end of communications as well because you wanted to make sure that your owners were never surprised by anything. And, um Again, these jobs are incredible privileges. There's 32 of them on the planet. I was fortunate to have a couple of them. Um, but I, I work really hard and make sure that uh, I try to stay on the front end of news cycles the best I could. I'm speaking with Mike Tannenbaum. Mike, you know, we've seen over the last decade uh, the emergence uh, of a lot of young coaches having success. And it's a different mindset from the NFL a quarter century ago where you had to have Typically, you had to have decades of experience to get those jobs. You had to have uh, put in years as a coordinator. You had to have put in years before that as an assistant coach. And now um, it's almost like what happened in baseball after Theo Epstein had that success with the Red Sox in 2004. People are looking for young, hungry coaches, even though the guys who won the most Super Bowls in the last decade are the oldest coaches in the league. When teams decide to go very young at the head coaching position, uh, what are the potential risks? What are the rewards? Every situation is going to be a little bit different, but I would say when, like, for example, we had Coach Gase in, in Miami, obviously very young, you know, so there's a relatability to, you know, the players in terms of how they communicate as something as fundamental as that, Jeremy, you know, texting or in social media, you know, they're much more familiar with that. With that said, you could look at Adam Staff with the Jets now, um, and you could see that Greg Williams, former head coach, Joe Vitt, former head coach, Having wisdom around him is a really, I think, an effective way of balancing sort of like the lack of experience, but the ability to communicate and relate with having some people there that you can have as sounding boards. And really, to me, like the perfect example is Sean McVay. Sean McVay was obviously a dynamic play caller, obviously very smart guy with great football acumen on the offensive side of the ball. And then you have somebody like Wade Phillips, who's been you know a coordinator or head coach for countless years on the other side of the ball. So I think... You want to have those effective balances. I, I think uh, a really interesting sort of dynamic moving into 2019, Jeremy, is going to be what happens in Arizona because you have Cliff Kingsbury who, and I, we had Cliff at the Jets in 05, but it's an unbelievably unique fact pattern. This was a guy that was let go coaching at the Big 12, and he was an offensive coordinator at USC for about three weeks, and now he has one of the 32 most sought-after jobs in the profession. If he's successful – that really will change the paradigm, in my opinion, in terms of hiring and sort of like the whole selection process. It's really going to be interesting because 
Cliff is a very talented and smart guy, but obviously he has skipped so many steps to have the seat that he currently has. It's interesting too, right? I mean, he's a guy who played for Mike Leach in college at Texas Tech, was a protege of Mike Leach's. Didn't have nearly the success that Mike Leach had as a head coach in that job, and yet Mike Leach never gets a sniff at the NFL. Whoa. Why did why does that kind of thing happen? I, I think part of it is, you know, I, and Mike's a fascinating guy. I love picking his brain. I've heard him talk. I read about him all the time. You know, part of it is, you know, you're you're the face of the franchise, and I'm sure there's some sort of, you know, hesitation or consternation of if you have somebody as flamboyant as Mike Leach, um, how is he going to be as the face of your organization? So um, it's a really fair point you're bringing up because he has been successful. He has developed the quarterback. He has brought a lot of innovation to you know, the position and the programs he's been on. So it's an interesting, you know, discussion. And, hey, if we're sitting here in January of 2020 and the Arizona Cardinals are the surprise team of the NFL, they're sitting there with nine wins and they're going to the playoffs, I bet you people like Mike Leach will definitely be part of the conversation moving forward. We're speaking with Mike Tannenbaum, the longtime NFL executive now works at ESPN as an NFL insider. Another name I just want to throw out there, uh, a guy I covered when he was playing uh, high school football. That's how old I am, Mike. Uh, Josh McDaniels, who, of course, was a head coach briefly in the NFL with the Denver Broncos, but is back to being the offensive coordinator in New England. You know Josh McDaniels, very talented. Uh, why is he still a coordinator why hasn't he returned to the head coaching ranks a guy like josh mcdaniels well i think he certainly could have had that opportunity going back a year ago with the colts and i think josh is really at the end day dealing from a position of strength jeremy he is in an ideal situation he's coaching obviously an iconic player in tom brady he has all the support of ownership and his head coach and bill belichick um josh is also a very thoughtful family man so i think for him it's going to have to be the ideal situation, and it's going to have to check every box. So I think when it's all said and done, he'll definitely be a head coach again. You know, when and if, that's uh, really an interesting discussion. But, again, I think at the end of the day, he's in an ideal situation. So he's really – he can, you know, be very particular in what his next opportunity looks like. I would be remiss, Mike, if I didn't ask you what you thought about the Cleveland Browns this year because everybody's talking about the Cleveland Browns as if they've won six Super Bowls in the last 20 years. Um <laughs> Is there any possible way for them to be as good? This is another team for which you worked a long time ago uh, when Bill Belichick was there. Is there any way for them to possibly uh, live up to the hype and the expectations, which to me seem totally out of proportion to what they should be for a franchise that hasn't been to the playoffs in, what is it, 16 years, something like that? I, I totally agree with you. I, I have real concerns. Um, starting with their head coach, I think Freddie Kitchens, if you and I owned a team and we said, hey, we want to have a great coach in five years, Freddie Kitchens would be on my short list. I think he has a chance to be a really good coach. With that said, a year ago at this time, he was a position coach. He is learning how to drive going 90 miles an hour in the left-hand lane. And I think what's more interesting about the Browns than anything is not when they lose you know, 49 to 46, because a lot of obviously egos and firepower on the offensive side of the ball, they'll be satisfied when they lose in the 40s. What I'm interested to see in the fall, what happens when they win six to three? What happens when they win 10 to six and Baker Mayfield throws four interceptions? That to me will be the real litmus test in can this team have sustainability? Because I'm a huge believer in Mike Tomlin. I'm a huge believer in John Harbaugh. And coaching in the NFL matters. And Mike Tomlin's never had a losing record. And those 
and no, I don't think that's really had enough coverage. So on paper, they're obviously vastly improved. Although I think there's still some concerns about their tackles, but obviously they're vastly improved on offense, Jeremy. But when it comes to coaching, the only grade you could give Freddie Kitchens and for that matter, Zach Taylor, the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, are grades have been complete. They've never done it before. And they're going against two of the very best that our sport has in Harbaugh and Tomlin. And that matters. It matters a lot. And it matters after a win in as much as after a loss. So I'm proceeding with caution in Cleveland. I think they'll be improved, but I think they still have a ways to go. Is Mike Tomlin on the hot seat after last year's disappointments and, and all the locker room stuff? Uh, you know, and, and that this is like one of the challenges. Um, you know, one of the decisions that didn't work out for us at the Jets was we go to two championship games, we stub our toe, and we move on from Brian Schottenheimer as the offensive coordinator. And, you know, you look back at that and you say, like, you know, was that really a good decision? You know, and Mike Tomlin's a really good coach. And if they ever moved on from him because they're not exactly happy where the team is right now, who are you going to get that's better? I mean, look at the record he's had over and over. And I think really what's so interesting is his acumen in player development. And I mean specifically, you look at the guys that the Santonio San home, I mean, the list is so long of all the guys they've moved on from at receiver or at pass rusher, they have done such a great job of developing replacements year in and year out. And Le'Veon Bell's the next guy. Antonio Brown's moved on. And and I'm telling you, if we're sitting here in October, you and I are going to have a conversation. Wow, did you see Smith-Schuster? Did you see James Conner? Did you see James Washington, the second-round pick a year ago uh, at receiver from Oklahoma State? So there's going to be all sorts of um, players that will play that have been under the radar for the Steelers. And I think Coach Tomlin deserves a lot of credit for that. Mike, it's always a pleasure. I hope we will be speaking in October and that you haven't taken some high-profile job back in the NFL and we get to hang out in the makeup room in Bristol some more. Mike Tannenbaum is longtime <laughs> NFL executive, 25 years in the league. He is now an ESPN NFL insider. Mike, thanks so much for spending some time here with us on The Sporting Life. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate you having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. We're joined now by Brian Banks. You're going to be hearing his name a lot, especially in the next few weeks. He is the subject of a new film titled Brian Banks, and it is about his life. Uh, first, before he was accused of a crime he did not commit, and then what happened afterwards in the film. Brian Banks is played by the actor Aldous Hodge. We are joined now by Brian Banks himself, who was hoping to play football at the University of Southern California. All of that changed when he was falsely accused of rape. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Brian, um, what is it like right now to see your story uh, in in a major motion picture on on the big screen? It's uh, it's pretty surreal, man. It's, it's exciting times. You know, this has been a project that's been in the works since 2012. So to finally be here, just days away from the release of this film, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's, it's it's really really a great experience. What kind of a football player were you? Uh, you know what? I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, one of those players that was, when I was young in high school, was tall, lean, with long arms, you know, and fast off the ball, quick with speed. Um, and I think that just throughout the, you know, time lost, and by the time I got an opportunity to make it back to a shot at the NFL, it became more of just, uh, 
wiser player, um, you know, and um, more hopeful than I was. I think at, at, than I was before. I think I have more more confidence and assurance in myself. And then you know, ten years lost, it was more of let me catch up and, and try to keep up with these younger guys. But uh, all in all, man, just uh, someone who was passionate about the game, somebody who loved the game, loved the sport, the camaraderie of it, the brotherhood of it. Uh, it was something that was one of the first uh, talents that somebody had told me that I was good in. So football meant a lot to me. When you were a junior in high school in 2002, what happened? Uh, so, I, you know, it was this was 2002. I was, uh, you know, 11th in the nation as a linebacker. I was being recruited by, uh, you know, top D1 schools. And uh, I went to a summer going into my senior year. Um, went to a, a known makeout spot on my campus with a girl that I've known for some time, and uh, we kissed and made out, and then that was it. But by the end of the day, uh, I had been arrested for uh, kidnapping and rape. And by the time they figured everything out that it didn't happen, uh, 10 years of my life had been lost. We're speaking with Brian Banks. He's the subject of a new film. He was a star high school linebacker in Long Beach, California, uh, he had verbally committed to USC when Pete Carroll was the head coach and the Trojans were a juggernaut in college football. And then he spent close to six years wrongfully imprisoned um, on rape charges and five years on a strict custody parole. Your conviction was finally overturned in 2012, Brian. How did that come about? Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, I, Without spoiling the film, you know this uh, this uh, woman who made up these accusations uh, contacted me uh, in a very peculiar kind of way, uh, which led to the two of us meeting uh, in person. And uh, I was successful uh, during that meeting at, at capturing her recantation on tape. I then took that tape over to the California Innocence Project, and they began fighting my case. Which took a year within, uh, you know, within the space of wrongful convictions is fairly fairly fast. You know, they have cases they've been working on now for twenty plus years, uh, but it took a year for my exoneration. And once I was exonerated, uh, you know, that's when you know I, my name was cleared, my life was restored, and my freedom back. Uh, that was which was uh, May twenty fourth, two thousand twelve. I walked into a courtroom uh, with hope that this would finally be resolved. And uh, and was blessed enough to walk out a free man. At that point, you were 26 years old. We're speaking with Brian Banks, the subject of the new film, Brian Banks, which is opening this weekend. And again, uh, we don't want to give everything away, but um, you're 26 years old at that point. Um, how do you even begin to start rebuilding your life? You know, one day at a time. You know, I, but it, it was... Uh, you know, I think the, the most important thing was just that I had got my life back, that the truth was finally out there as to what really happened. You know, I had always told myself I'd figure out, you know, what I'd do next as long as I could just get the truth there and get my name clear. Uh, so, you know, after that, it was just a matter of, you know, figuring out what it is that I wanted to do with, you know, with this, uh, with this newfound freedom, this small window of opportunity, you know, to people, you know, paying attention to my story and situation. And so I, I uh, chose to uh, pursue dreams that were taken away, you know, and, and to restore those dreams, which were to play football. I uh, took most of that time, you know, training and 
in the gym and on the field and working with you know multiple people and getting myself prepared for uh, you know or to be in hopes not necessarily prepared because nothing was guaranteed at that time but more just so just being prepared for opportunities that that if they presented themselves I, I'd be ready for it. At this moment in time, um, you know the Me Too movement um, has has uh, has been something that's been at the center of our national dialogue for the last few years. What do you think the message is from your film against that backdrop? Uh, well, you know what I think the most important thing to 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 know is that I'm a victim too. Uh, so in no way is this uh, this movie or, or this message uh, to go against any other victims of of, uh, of you know being taken advantage of against your will. Um, but what I think that this movie does reflect on is the flaws within our system that uh, when these types of cases or any other case comes uh, uh, comes across the table of a district attorney. Uh, that they uh, use the you know their moral and ethical you know ethical obligation to to seek the truth and to to do what's right in, in discovering what actually happened in these cases versus uh, rushing to a conviction rate or rushing to convict somebody. You know we have a society or a system that's you know tough on crime, which is good. We want to be tough on crime, but we we want to be tough on those who actually commit the crimes and not. Uh, people that uh, have been uh, wrongfully accused of them, and and, and so I think that uh, that you know I I think that on both sides, you know, when you're dealing with uh, someone who has been uh, who has and in fact experienced being uh, sexually assaulted, and someone who has experienced being wrongfully accused of it and wrongfully convicted of it, uh, I, I think that uh, both sides can agree that. Uh, the pressure must be on our, our appointed officials and our detectives and our judges and our, our lawyers and you know our system uh, to 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 navigate through these cases properly and efficiently and do what's right and uh, making sure that the, the right person uh, is put behind bars, the right person is punished, uh, and the right person is protected. We've been speaking with Brian Banks. He is the subject of a new film out this week uh, about his life in football and, more importantly, uh, his life fighting to clear his name after a wrongful conviction. Brian, thanks so much for having joined us here in The Sporting Life. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking interest in this story and, and you know, joining me on this journey and promoting the message of changing the system. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Alex Spire has been covering the Boston Red Sox, the organization from top to bottom, for more than a decade. He's been at the Boston Globe for the last four years, and his new book is Homegrown, How the Red Sox Built a Champion from the Ground Up, in particular about the 2018 season, which resulted in the Red Sox fourth World Series championship since 2004. Alex Spire joins us now. Alex, thanks for being with us. It's a delight. Thank you very much, Jeremy. What has it been like for you watching these players, these homegrown players, as you call them, rise up through the Red Sox system to the point at which last year they won the World Series with a team you could call the greatest Red Sox team of all time? It was pretty fascinating. My my coverage of them has been kind of from their from the beginning of their entry into the professional ranks, and so getting to know these guys who are you know whether they're coming out of high school or whether they are 
uh, coming over to the States from Aruba in the case of, of Xander Bogart uh, or the Dominican in the case of, uh, of Rafael Devers. And um, seeing them kind of grow as, as people, it, it makes sense. There's this kind of, there was this kind of interesting narrative arc uh, that, uh, that existed with them. And it wasn't always just kind of a, a singular direction that that arc took. Uh, it required them, it required this kind of building tension and, and the, they had to confront failure in dramatic fashion um, that was that was pretty poignant at different times. So uh, last year was was really fascinating because I had this long-standing belief um, that they were very talented. But uh, you also have to be mindful that it's easy to overestimate prospects uh, until they've actually performed. Um, and so you saw the pieces coming together over time, but uh, for it to come together as it did last year was was pretty remarkable, given their individual and collective backstories. But then again, it's also been kind of interesting to watch it uh, take a turn in a different direction for the Red Sox in 2019. We're speaking with Alex Spire about his new book about the Red Sox, homegrown, how the Red Sox built a champion from the ground up. And as I said, you've been covering this team uh, from its grassroots all the way to the major league level for more than a decade. If you had to pinpoint a couple of decisions that over the course of the last decade uh, bore the most fruit with that championship last year and those 108 regular season victories, what would they be? I think the starting point has to be the 2011 draft and really the, the way that the Red Sox approached the Major League Baseball draft before the 2012 collective bargaining agreement uh, was instituted and wiped out the ability of teams to spend like crazy as much as they wanted to on amateur talent. Um, the Red Sox were incredibly, I, I think, pretty insightful, pretty forward-thinking, uh, starting under Theo Epstein about recognizing that there was no such thing as too much investment in amateur talent because of the potential return on the dollar that it could, that it could net them. And so in 2011, the Red Sox loaded up on picks at a time when that was possible, uh, and they, they scouted incredibly heavily, recognizing that maybe if they were to, quote-unquote, overpay some guys a little bit later in the draft, they would have a chance to accumulate talent that might not exist again. The result of that draft was uh, was a, a kind of extraordinary haul. In the first round, they got Matt Barnes, who was a critical relief, uh, you know, relief contributor to last year's championship, Jackie Bradley Jr., the 2018 ALCS MVP. Uh, they also had a couple of other uh, solid picks who ended up being big leaguers in Henry Owens and Blake Swihart, who ultimately proved disappointing. They had some bad picks. A guy who ended up being arrested in the seventh round after they had paid him seven hundred fifty thousand dollars named Cody Kuka. Uh But then they also had the uh, a couple of extraordinary finds, most notably Mookie Betts in the fifth round at that time. And it was it was a contentious negotiation process, or at least a difficult negotiation process uh, that almost resulted in Betts going to college. But at the 11th hour, or more precisely, 11.30 p.m. on the signing deadline day, uh, Mookie Betts agreed to sign with the Red Sox. And this little five foot nine, 150-pound kid who they thought had a chance to be more than what most of the scouting community thought he could be uh, ended up being more than the Red Sox thought he could be. Yeah, remarkable, uh, the player that Mookie Betts has become. And, and, you know, you also point out in the book that, you know, you need – the breaks to go your way. You need things to develop in a way that no one can necessarily foresee. Uh, and you talk about how things might have gone uh, another direction. Um, there was a near tragedy uh, for some of these players when they were in the minor leagues in, on a road trip. And I think back to 
you know, uh, it's even more remarkable what the Red Sox have done, considering that one of the prize, one of the most prized um, young players in their system, Ryan Westmoreland, uh, suffered a tragic um, brain aneurysm. Uh, it's more complicated than that, and, and his career came to an end very suddenly. How, how does how does randomness play into this? So heavily, it's impoignantly. Uh, uh, there, are, Brian Westmoreland was, you know, was the, uh, described by many people as the most talented young player, uh, the most talented teenager from the states they had ever seen, um, at least in the Red Sox organization over a span of decades. And you're absolutely right. Uh, there are these kinds of incredibly unpredictable elements that are, you know, that, that account for not just not just baseball development, but also life uh and that it that impacts ultimately what a you know what what a team is building towards and who they're going to be be able to build forward with um there was you know there there were these near there was this near plus accident that occurred uh back in uh back in 2014 that would have you know that would have uh significantly that could have significantly altered the careers uh or lives of a number of people who were involved there are uh there are off-field matters such as depression and anxiety that exists and that affect whether or not a player is going to be able to fulfill their projection. There are uh, doubts that, you know, that are normal with anyone in, in any profession that suddenly take talent and, uh, and cause it to erode and prevent players from, uh, from realizing what, what their natural abilities perhaps might suggest. Um, so there, there are any number of factors there has to be an incredible amount of luck in terms of forecasting, uh, in terms of forecasting personality types. After all, you're taking, you're, you're spending, you know, sometimes millions of dollars, sometimes tens of millions of dollars in the case of something like Yoan Mankata and making a bet on that a guy who shows you an impressive personality as an 18 year old is going to remain a, a driven, focused professional as a 23-year-old. I don't know about you, Jeremy. I changed a lot <laughs> between those <laughs> ages. I don't know if I would have made uh, too many successful bets on my future personality uh, at the age of 18, but um, there are so many uncontrollable elements that have to go into the building of a farm system, which is part of the reason why getting numbers is really important. You have to be able to have this depth of prospects in order to be able to withstand uh, attrition that exists in any number of fashions to a prospect core. And this was a team, uh, you know, playing for a new manager. Uh, there was tension, which you document in the book in 2017, uh, to put it mildly, between Dave Dombrowski, who runs the club, uh, and and John Farrell, who was the manager at the time. What, what Bringing in Cora, how did that change things? Well, I think that culture is, is critical to, you know, to performance. And that's the case in just about any operating business environment. Um, when you have, you know, in, inside of a, a baseball clubhouse is such an insular bubble in many ways that uh, if you have a false note, it tends to echo throughout that, you know, just kind of bouncing off of the walls of that bubble that isn't really too porous. It, it traps in a lot of, uh, a lot of negative, uh, a lot of negative energy. When you have tension between, your two organizational leaders inside of that bubble, it tends to create uh, it tends to create these ripples that make it really hard for anyone to relax. So, you know, the, the decision was made to fire John Farrell, which on its surface is kind of extraordinary. This was someone who had won three division titles in the American League East in a five year span and had won a World Series. He was coming off a division title, but it, it was very evident that the tension that existed between Farrell and Dabrowski was not going to be 
uh, was not something that, that the group could thrive with. Um, and so bringing in Alex Cora was significant both because he had he, he demonstrates remarkable social intelligence, the ability to connect with a number of people in a number of different ways uh, to create an environment that, that kind of got rid of a lot of that tension. Um, and importantly, he also was able to kind of modernize the thinking of the Red Sox, especially at the field level. Um, he is someone who came from the Houston Astros organization that had moved forward, moved the game forward in many ways in terms of what it was doing in terms of uh, the application of analytics on the field uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of batters, offensive approaches and defensive positioning, uh, among other among other elements. And so that ability to help modernize the paths of uh, the paths of what the Red Sox were doing, the young Red Sox players, was also critical to unlocking another level of performance above the one that they had exhibited to that point. Well, it's a fascinating look at how you build a championship team from uh, the draft with homegrown talent, uh, with uh, bold decision-making. And nobody could tell this story better than Alex Spire, who covers the Boston Red Sox for the Boston Globe. His new book is Homegrown, How the Red Sox Built a Champion from the Ground Up. Alex, thanks so much and congrats on the book. Thanks so much, Jeremy. A pleasure to join you. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.